All right, well, good morning again. So today marks our second sermon in the series, Jesus Praise, or Our Lord Praise. And if you've been reading along in John 17 at all, uh, you'll know by now that this chapter, chapter is not too long. It's only 26 verses, but it's dense. Uh, Jesus certainly reveals much uh, about himself and about those he prays for with his prayer. And so before we get started, uh, we should take the advice of Charles Spurgeon, who wrote, that texts will often refuse to reveal their treasures until you open them with the key of prayer. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that we cannot hope to understand your word on our own. It is only by your grace that we are allowed to know the truth which you have written for us. Incline our hearts to your word, God, and not to selfish gain. Open our eyes, minds, and hearts so that we can accept the wondrous gifts offered by your word. Let us be satisfied by none other than you. Amen. Hear now a portion of Jesus' prayer to the Father from John 17, starting in verse 6. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. This is the word of the Lord. If you've looked at your calendar recently, you would know that tomorrow is Columbus Day, uh, marking Columbus's arrival somewhere on this continent on October 12, 1492. Of course, Columbus today is somewhat of a controversial figure, Uh, But he's commonly regarded as the man who brought Christianity to North America. And if you fast forward a few hundred years, when the United States was established, while we have no official national religion, I think it's fair to say that over the course of our history, we've been a country that is majority Christian. Most of our people are Christian. Recently, in 2021, one study estimated that about 65% of our country identifies as Christian. 
Other studies say maybe it's closer to 50%, possibly even a little bit below. But regardless of what the number is, I think if you were to take attendance on churches on Sunday, if you were to ask people how often they read God's Word or how often they pray, I think you'd find that many people who identified as Christians in that 50 to 65% don't necessarily show a lot of evidence with that in their life. So that kind of raises a question, at least in my mind. What does it mean to be a Christian? Some of us have the name. But for the rest of us, it's something that we identify with. <clears throat> if we look at our source of truth, God's word, we'll only find the word Christian used three times. And each of those three times it's used to name a group of people rather than identify any sort of description or attributes about those people. So rather than ask, what is a Christian, a better question might be, what is a disciple? The term a disciple is used extensively in the Bible, 261 times in the New Testament, and 78 times in the Gospel of John alone. And so we're going to look at that today. What does it mean to be a disciple based on our passage in John 17? But before we do that, we've got to do something that we always do, and that's look at the context. And specifically, we're going to try to answer two questions to look at the context. First, who is Jesus really praying for in this section of John 17? And second, why is Jesus praying for them? So let's start with the who. If you have the NIV translation, you already know the answer, because the passage has a nice heading that says Jesus prays for his disciples. And that's true. If you identify the context, we'll see that is true as well. If you go back and read John chapters 14 through 16, Jesus, of course, is eating and speaking with his disciples, most likely the 12. And so when we get to John 17, we start seeing references to they and them as Jesus prays. We can be confident that he's referring to those disciples that are with them on that night. If we look at verse 9 from our passage today, that can give us even greater confidence. Jesus says, I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. So he's praying for a very specific group of people, and most likely those who were with him that night. But that causes a bit of a problem, doesn't it? And the question is, or the problem becomes, if Jesus is praying specifically for those who were with him on that night, can we apply any parts of his prayer to ourselves or to the church today? We can. That's the short answer. So if we look just a little bit past our passage into verse 20, Jesus says, My prayer is not for them alone, his disciples alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Those who will believe in Jesus through the message of the disciples. That sounds a lot like the church that the disciples will soon establish. Sounds a lot like the church today. Sounds a lot like us. So Jesus' prayer is not just for that group that was with him that night, but for all who would come to believe in him through his word. Let's move into now why Jesus says this prayer. So two weeks ago, Dave taught us that one of the central themes of this entire chapter, this entire prayer, was Jesus' glory. Now glory is a word you hear often, uh, and I don't know if it's defined all that often. But in a biblical context, we can, one way to define glory is that it's part of the character of God. 
So if we say some action glorifies God, what we're really saying is that it simply just displays the truth about who God is. So when Jesus prays for his own glory, what he's really praying for is that the world would come to know his true identity as the Son of God. And so Dave taught us that in verses 1 through 5 of John 17, Jesus is praying that he would be glorified or he would be known in the world by his own work that he had completed. But of course, at this point in the story, we know that Jesus would soon be leaving this earth. His earthly ministry was coming to a close, but at the same time, there was still a lot of work left to do. Later on, Jesus would reveal the nature of that work to his disciples. Go and make disciples of all nations, he said. This work would indeed glorify Jesus. It's intended to reveal him to the world. And Jesus' disciples would be the messengers. They had followed Jesus for three years. They had already actually helped reveal Jesus to the world or to glorify Jesus, as it says in verse 10 in today's passage. But now it was their turn to take the lead, to establish a body called the church. And so Jesus is praying for his disciples as they set out on this in order to ensure that they are equipped to carry on his mission. But there's another reason Jesus reveals why he prays for his disciples. And it's revealed in the fact here that Jesus prays aloud. As you read through all the Gospels, I can think of only one other instance where Jesus prays out loud, and that's outside the tomb of Lazarus. Normally, Jesus goes to a quiet place where he can be alone and commune with the Father. But here he prays aloud. And verse 13 seems to tell us why. It says that the disciples may experience the full measure of his joy. Not long before this passage, back in John 15, the same night, Jesus told his disciples that they would find joy by obeying what he commands them to do. And we'll cover the work that the disciples are commanded to do and the opposition that they would face a little bit later today. But really, as the disciples continued to do Jesus' work, even as they faced great opposition, they could remember this spoken prayer of Jesus. And they could have joy that they were doing the exact thing that Jesus asked them to do. They were in the exact place where he intended them to be. So the answering the question why Jesus prays, we've got two reasons. That his disciples would be equipped to carry out the mission, his mission, and that disciples would experience joy as they do so. Now back to our question of what does it mean to be a disciple? Well, to help us organize our thoughts and answer that question, I want to actually bring in a second scripture. And not long before this passage, which is known as the Upper Room Discourse, or the Last Supper, Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. And we're going to look at this passage from Matthew 16. Verse 13 says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, 
And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So Jesus' response to Peter here is short, but it actually tells us quite a bit about being a disciple. And so we're going to kind of break it down and go through it and compare it to what we see in John 17. So first thing Jesus says is, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. (laughs) Blessed or blessed is the key word here. And a good definition, I think, for blessed is to experience God's favor. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we have an easy life or a luxurious life. In fact, as you follow the life of the disciples after Jesus left, at times it was anything but easy or luxurious. Rather, to experience God's favor, we can look at as being in relationship with God or to belong to God. And in John 17, Jesus speaks of belonging to God. Verse 6, remember, he says to the Father, They were yours. You gave them to me. Again in verse 9, Jesus says that he prays for those the Father has given him because they belong to the Father. So that's our first thing about disciples, is that they are those who belong to God. This isn't the first time, and it won't be the last time, that God claims people as his own in the Bible. Just a couple instances. After the exodus from Egypt, God brings the Israelites to Mount Sinai and claims them as his own. He says, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Fast forward to the end of the Bible. God claims his people in the new heaven and the new earth as well. Revelation 21 says, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. So disciples are those who belong to God and who will dwell with him in eternity. In some ways, that might be all we need to know. But there's more. Let's go back to Matthew 16, still in verse 17. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. So what Jesus is saying here is that the knowledge of God the Father and the knowledge of Jesus and who they truly are does not come from man, but from God himself. We see this in John 17 as well. Verse 6, Jesus says, He has revealed the Father to his disciples. And in verse 8, Jesus says that he gave the disciples the words given him by the Father. And as a result of the words given to them, They knew that Jesus was sent by God. So God reveals himself to his disciples. If you go to the letter of the Hebrews, the author dives right into this point with no context whatsoever. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. You see it twice here. God spoke to our ancestors. God has spoken to us. When God speaks, he reveals himself. Sometimes it's through the words of man, and sometimes through the words of Jesus himself. So what do we do with this knowledge, that disciples are those to whom God has revealed himself? Well, if you continue reading through chapter 1 in Hebrews, 
It continues talking about who Jesus really is, comparing him to all sorts of other things in the history of Israel. But when you get to chapter 2, the author tells us what we should do with that knowledge. Verse 1. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. So we are not to forget the truth that God has revealed to us. We should regularly and continually seek God through his word and through prayer, so that we do not let the truth that he has revealed to us be forgotten. Back to Matthew 16 again. Now in verse 18, Jesus says to Peter, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now the meaning of the word rock here is somewhat debated. Some insist that rock refers to Peter himself, as Peter, the Greek, kind of implies rock. But it's probably much more likely that Jesus isn't referring to Peter when he says on this rock. Rather, Jesus is referring to Peter's confession. That Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And on this truth is where Jesus is going to build his church. But why does Jesus establish the church? Kind of teased this in the introduction a little bit. In John 17, 11, Jesus says, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. So put it another way, Jesus is saying, his earthly ministry is coming to a close. But the disciples, the church that he leaves behind, is to continue his work. And what is it they are to do? John 17, verses 18 through 19. Jesus says, As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Now, sanctified in this context means that we are set apart for a purpose, a holy purpose. And what's that purpose? Well, as Jesus would later tell his disciples after his resurrection, Matthew 28, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Or we can look at Acts 1. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So to be a disciple or to be a part of the church means that we do our part to fulfill Jesus' commission. And one more time back to Matthew chapter 16, still in verse 18. Jesus replied, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it, will not overcome the church. So Jesus here reveals that there are forces in this world that oppose the kingdom of God. There's a battle going on between good and evil. But there's something about this battle that's maybe not what we would expect. Jesus references here the gates of Hades, where Hades sometimes is translated as hell, or it's understood to be the realm of the dead. But that's not necessarily the key point here. The key word in this phrase is actually gate. If you think about ancient Israel and towns, a gate in each town would be a place of defense. So if Jesus is saying that the gates of Hades will not stand against the church, that means we, the church, are bringing our mission out to the world, to the gates of Hades, in order to face death itself. And Jesus promises that we will be victorious. Put another way, the church is to bring the gospel 
into places where it's not wanted and it's not welcomed. And Jesus reiterates this point in John 17. Verse 14, Jesus says that the world has hated his disciples. And yet, in verse 15, Jesus does not want his disciples to be taken out of the world. Rather, he asks that they be protected from the evil one. Continue on to verse 16. Jesus asked that the disciples would not fall victim to the temptations of the world, so that they would not become of the world. So Jesus isn't calling us as his disciples to be comfortable, to shelter in safe spaces that we create, to withdraw from the world and leave the world to their own devices. No, Jesus is calling us as his disciples and his church out to the front lines to bring the gospel into places where it's not wanted, to the gates of Hades, and take a risk so that others might be freed. The world is going to hate the church, and I think we can see that some today. But Jesus promised that the disciples would have trouble. But we also know that we won't be alone. John 16, after saying that the disciples will encounter trouble, Jesus says, he has overcome the world. Matthew 28, after giving the Great Commission, Jesus says, he will be with us always to the end of the age. John 14, as Sharon read for us, and in John 15, Jesus promises to send us the Holy Spirit. We will not be alone. And here in John 17, verse 11, Jesus points out that we will have one another. The disciples will be united in God's name, just as Jesus and the Father were united. In verse 17 and 19, Jesus says that we will be equipped with the truth as we go out, with God's word. So with all these things in mind, we can have confidence that no matter what we face, God will be with us through it all. So to quickly review, here's what we know about disciples and about ourselves from John 17. This isn't an exhaustive list. There's more in other parts of the Bible, but this is what we have from our passage today. Number one, we belong to God. We are his treasured possession. Number two, we know God, Father, Son, and Spirit, because he has revealed himself to us. Number three, together we make up the church. And that unites us by a common belief that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. And it also unites us by a common mission to tell the world who Jesus really is or to bring glory to Jesus. And number four, as disciples, we will face opposition in this world, but God sends us anyway, and he goes with us and equips us to do kingdom work on his behalf. So that is, in part, at least, what it means to be a disciple. And then the question becomes, of course, how should we respond to that? Maybe you're like me, and you've often found yourself asking questions. What does God want me to do with my life? How exactly has he equipped me to make disciples? And honestly, I wish I knew how to answer that question for you, just as much as I wish I knew how to answer that question for myself. I think we've all probably taken paths that seemed right to us, that seemed, this might be God's will for my life, only to find that that path hits a dead end, and it wasn't what God had planned for you. Just in the past year or so, 
I've pursued two opportunities that I was absolutely confident were exactly where God was leading me to go. It all made sense in my brain. What more did I need? But I was turned away. Those were not God's will. But I think for me personally, and perhaps for you, I tend to get caught up in those questions too much. The questions of, where do I go? And what do I do? Because when I get caught up in those questions, I'm forgetting the most important thing. That wherever I go, and whatever I do, I'm supposed to walk with God through it all. You think back to the beginning parts of the Gospels. Jesus calls each one of his disciples to follow him. And that's what they do. And by following him, they live in his presence for three years throughout his earthly ministry. It's a little harder because we don't have a physical person to follow. But we should do the same. Seek the presence of God in Jesus. How do we do that? Through his word, through prayer, and through worship. Listen to these words of David from Psalm 37, verse 23. The Lord makes firm the steps of the one who delights in him. So first and foremost, we should delight in the Lord. And if we do that, we can be confident that he will make firm our steps. He will lead us where he wants us to go. Let's pray. Father in heaven, let us never forget that you have claimed us. You have made yourself known to us, and you send us out for a purpose. But let us also never forget that the best thing we can do with our lives is to know, love, and worship you. Let our delight be in you and you alone, God. Amen.